This is Salt and Spine. I wanted to show people that. So Dessert Person is a really wholehearted embrace of baking and eating and sweets and enjoying dessert and enjoying food and not applying a kind of morality to dessert that you have to earn it or that it's, you know, you're being bad or like, quote unquote, sinful when you eat dessert. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Claire Saffitz. Now, Claire became a near-household name during her time at the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, where she starred in many of the channel's videos, including her own series, Gourmet Makes. In that show, she reverse-engineered popular processed treats, ranging from Sour Patch Kids to Doritos. After growing up in the Midwest, Claire landed at Harvard, where she studied history and literature, before moving to Paris to study French cuisine and pastry. And that's not the end of her academic career. But before long, she found her way into food media. And today, Claire has her own YouTube channel in addition to contributing to the New York Times food section. Claire joined us this week to discuss her debut cookbook titled Dessert Person, Recipes and Guidance for Baking with Confidence, which became an instant New York Times bestseller when it was published last fall. Claire believes everyone can be or is a dessert person, something we'll discuss in today's show. Now, Claire joined us remotely for this week's show. Stick around. It's a really great chat. And of course, we're playing a culinary game to close the episode. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Claire Saffitz joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you and to talk about your first cookbook, Dessert Person, Recipes and Guidance for Baking with Confidence, uh, which is beautiful. Congratulations. I love the citrus olive oil cake photo on the cover. It's just stunning and makes me want to bake it immediately. Thank you. I love that photo. I feel like when my you know team of food stylists and prop stylists and photographer all took that photo, we were like, oh, that's it. She's we, we refer to them all as she, where she's the cover. So I've been thinking a lot about our shoots and how that all went, because now I'm thinking about doing it all over again for a second cookbook. So I, I'm so happy with the way the book turned out. And I feel very lucky as a first time author. And I told my editor at Clarkson Potter, my publisher, that I was really grateful that I got to write the book that I wanted to write. And that's what Dessert Person is. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think something a lot of cookbook authors are really proud to be able to say when they feel that the book is really the one they wanted to do. And maybe we'll come back to that second cookbook in a minute if you can share anything with us. I don't know if you can, but we always like to start by talking about you a little bit more before we talk about the book, sort of your career, your life as it relates to food. So I know you grew up in the Midwest, right? Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and the role that food played in your life? Yeah, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. My older sisters and I were all born and raised there. My parents were East Coast transplants to the Midwest. So I grew up in and around Washington University where my dad worked in a community called Clayton. And went through, you know, K through 12 in that community. And um, it was a wonderful place to grow up. And in my immediate family, we have just always been a family that prioritized food and eating and cooking. Um, The joke in our family was that we plan the next meal at the current meal. You know, it's like when we're having dinner, Uh the question is, what are you having for dinner tomorrow? So it's just food is our locus for sociability. And that didn't strike me as remarkable in any way at all growing up because that was just how it was. And both of my parents loved to cook and also loved to eat. I think there's a distinction there. I learned 
that it was acceptable and even encouraged to eat with gusto, which I'm, I'm really glad that I learned that lesson because I think it's a lesson that maybe not a lot of girls learn actually. Um, an appetite is not only okay, but it's good and encouraged. And I'm very grateful for having learned that lesson. Both of my parents are good models of good relationships with food. And so I, I certainly internalized a certain amount of diet culture, as I call it, as I see it now, but in general had a, a very positive family life around food. But again, as I said, it didn't seem remarkable. And it was really only until I became a young adult and went away to college and was away from that sort of family structure where food and eating and cooking were at, really at the center that I realized how important it was to me. And then I decided to pursue it professionally. It wasn't something that I always thought that I wanted to do when I was growing up. Not at all, really. It was only until my very early adulthood, if you can even call that period after college adulthood, because I'm not sure that you can, but it was really in that period that I caught the cooking bug really hard. And then I decided that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so food was a big part of your life growing up. But were you actively sort of cooking and baking too? You mentioned once, I know, in the book that you started your baking career with boxed cake mixes, like many folks do. But what was your sort of relationship to cooking and baking throughout that period? I always cooked with my parents. And my mom taught me how to cook and bake just sort of by osmosis. It wasn't like I was asking her, teach me how to make this or that. I just watched her constantly. And my parents would give us little tasks to do for when they were making dinner. And then as a teen, as a young teen, and then later teen, got really into baking. And my friends and I would bake together a lot. And it was just sort of a fun activity that we could do because before we had our licenses and couldn't go anywhere. Not that when we had our licenses, we went anywhere and did anything anyway. It became another way to be social and <laughs> yeah. make our own make our own entertainment. But that was not serious baking. That was just having fun and doing a project. It's sort of, you know, I think about that kind of baking as like a craft project more than anything that then we ate at the end with, you know, tub frosting and or, you know, boxed brownie mixes, something like that. So I guess it, I see it now as more an expression of my desire to make things and also to share food and dessert with other people. Yeah. And you also mentioned in the book that maybe baking is in some way in your blood because you, I'm not sure exactly when, but relatively recently, I think, discovered that your great grandfather was actually a baker before emigrating to the to the States. Is that right? Yes. I spent a good chunk of summer 2019 with my mom. I was super behind on book deadlines. I was working on Dessert Person and feeling okay. like totally just underwater with my deadlines. And I, I decided to kind of move in with my parents. I called it my sabbatical, even though it was really, I just like moved in with my parents to have some time to focus. Uh -huh. We were we were baking together every day. And one day she just sort of offhandedly said, you know, oh, well, you know, your great, my grandfather, my mom's grandfather, as in my great grandfather was a baker. Something I had never heard before. The story of my mom's side of the family was that her grandparents who only spoke Yiddish and, and immigrated from a part of the of Ukraine. I don't even, we can't even really identify to this day and have like extensively looked into it. The story of that, of her family was that they were in the women's clothing business or, you know, I'm Jewish as, as, as we would say, the schmata business. And I never heard a story about anyone in our, my family being a baker, but apparently before emigrating, that was my great grandfather's profession. And so 
it just explained a lot. It explained why we have a handful of baking recipes on my mom's side that are beloved and have been passed through my grandmother's generation to my mother and now to me. And that was, I mean, it didn't, I don't know if it, you know, I don't want to overstate the significance of that. It's just a funny coincidence. And I really did appreciate that nugget because as I said, it explained the existence of these really beloved kind of Jewish baked goods that we've always had my, my aunt Tilly's apple cake family recipe, aunt Rose's mandel bread, which is in the book. And and these are all siblings of my grandmother. So it was just funny to hear my mom mention that having never Uh heard it before, you know, my, well, you know, I was 34, like I'd never heard her talk about that. So um, it was just kind of a funny little anecdote that she shared. Yeah, it is. I, I love that and that you in- included that in the book. You alluded to this a little bit already, but I want to talk about how you sort of then became interested in cooking more professionally because you graduate high school. I know you go to Harvard. You're at the time, I think you were studying humanities. Like what was sort of your career path like then? And when did the food bug sort of like, was there a moment where it clicked or was it sort of gradual? Yeah, it was gradual. As you said, I went to Harvard. I studied humanities. My concentration was a sort of an interdisciplinary concentration about history and literature of America. And I thought, I my dad is an academic. My sister is an academic. I sort of thought I would be an academic. And I loved the idea of being able to learn. I had a very sort of romantic notion of what it means to be an academic, which is, oh, you just get to learn, you know, as your job. And I like the idea of teaching. And I've always was really good at school. I really liked school. Sure. I worked hard. And I was like, I'll just be in school forever, basically. But that idea did not pan out in reality. I graduated yeah. from college in 2009. It was the recession. Job prospects were really dismal. I did not know what to do with a humanities degree. And the one thing that I just consistently, the only thing I consistently wanted to do in that period of like deep existential angst as a 22-year-old was cook. I actually initially lived with my parents after graduating uh-huh. and then I moved to New York. And during the, that first year or two out of college, it was the only thing I had any desire to do. I would cook like an elaborate dinner for my parents. And my parents would be like, did you apply for a job today? And I'd be like, no, I researched recipes and went to the grocery store and <laughs> yeah. gave me dinner, you know? And so eventually I got my act together. I got an internship right. and moved to New York. But that was still the only thing I wanted to do was cook and bake. I I sort of had a sense uh, that the level of passion that I had for it was something I should listen to. So after a couple of years in New York, feeling pretty lost, I decided, okay, I got to do something. I have to, you know, start myself out on some kind of a path. If I want to pursue this, I should pursue it. And I should do it now because it's only going to get harder as I establish myself in a place more and more. And that's when I decided to go to culinary school, mostly out of a desire to to gain knowledge for the sake of knowledge. I just, I wanted the experience. I was looking at programs in New York where I was living and then realized that I could go abroad and do culinary school abroad and it would be less expensive than staying in New York. And that's what I decided to do. It became this way of, I think, distracting myself and probably being what I see now as a little depressed out of college of feeling lost and and stuck. And then eventually it became mm-hmm. something more than that. And so I'm really glad that I decided to listen to that inclination, which probably had something to do with being overall dissatisfied with my with 
any kind of work life that I had at the time. It wasn't like I had a high paying job that was enticing me to stay there. You know, I wasn't like really doing much of anything. I'm grateful that I also had parents who supported that and told me like, okay, you want to go to culinary school? Like, We're not sure, but like, you know, give us, tell us your plan and like, we'll sign off. That's what I did. Yeah. And how did you then go from the culinary school life to deciding you were going to sort of merge some of these things and pursue food media? Did that kind of happen naturally? Or was that an intention that you set that you wanted to go down that path? That also happened naturally, sort of in real time. Like my career path now in retrospect makes sense. But when I was going through this series of steps I had no idea what I was doing. So I went to culinary school and I still had that idea in my head that I would be an academic. And I sort of thought like, well, I can always go back to school and pursue some kind of graduate degree. So that's what I did following culinary school in Paris. I moved to Montreal and I did a one-year master's program at Mm -hmm. McGill University in the history department with a focus on culinary history, studying the history of ideas around food and eating and cooking. I loved it. I I loved the program, but about halfway through the program, I decided that I really missed cooking. I think I really decided at at a certain point, I would rather be cooking the food than reading and writing about it. Although I wanted to do both really. And that's when I sort of realized there was this thing called food media. I don't think I would have called it food media at the time. I just sort of recognized, oh, there are magazines that have recipes in them. And someone has to make those recipes and write them down. And maybe I can do that. And maybe that's uh-huh. a way of of creating recipes and writing for a more popular audience rather than an audience of, of other academics. And that really appealed to me. I, I think that I always have naturally been a recipe developer, which is to say someone who decided what I wanted to make did a ton of research, synthesized a number of different recipes or uh, approaches, and then kind of created my own version of something. And that's what recipe development is. It was really only after deciding that I didn't want to work in a restaurant, but I didn't want to be an academic. And can I find something that has sort of a, a foot in both? And that to me was food media. Yeah. And so you you land at Bon Appetit, you're working there for a while. I'm curious if you can tell us what you learned about home cooks and home bakers in your time there? Because I think this book is so much designed to be a teaching guide for folks who want to bake at home. And I imagine working in any sort of food media like that, you're getting feedback and comments for like what's working. Were there things that shifted for you from a culinary perspective and how you approach recipes that came about from that job or that role? It really happened after leaving Bon Appetit, truly. I mean, I think that in the beginning of my career at Bon Appetit, working in a test kitchen and developing recipes, I really wasn't as in touch with home cooks as I am now. I think the book for me, I think Dessert Person represents my most sort of conscious effort to meet home cooks where they are. And I think what happens in food media a lot of times, at least in my experience, I guess I shouldn't generalize that I, I felt like I got caught up in creating content or recipes that my peers at Mon Appetit would like and respect, which wasn't necessarily the same thing as creating a recipe for home cooks that's going to be not intimidating and achievable and delicious and fast and easy, which was so much of, of what we try to provide in our content. Working in a test kitchen, it's easier to do that because it's not quite the environment of a home kitchen. You know, we had 
an endless number of bowls and someone would order your ingredients for you and you didn't have to go to the grocery store to shop for them. So I, it's really been in this, the more recent years of my career that I have done my own sort of almost anthropology of, of home cooks. And I talk a lot more to home cooks now than I ever did really working at the magazine to ask what their anxieties are, what their fears are, what trips them up, what what kinds of recipes will you make? What kinds of recipes won't you make? So I like to think that Dessert Person is really a very deliberate sort of book for home cooks in a way that maybe my work at Bon Appetit was was less friendly. And part of that, I think, is because I created Dessert Person in my kitchen, in my apartment versus a test kitchen, which is just a different kind of environment. So there would be times where it's like, I'm not getting another pot out because I have to wash that pot or like that right. doesn't fit in my dishwasher. I don't have another spatula. I, I think that where I am in my career is going even further to uncover and analyze and kind of interrogate what home cooks do and how they think, really. Yeah, and that's interesting too, because I think you're perhaps most well known to a mass audience from the Gourmet Makes videos, which are like probably the farthest we could get from like what a home cook is actually going to probably do. And I think I understand that you were sort of hesitant about that concept at first, the Gourmet Makes concept, right? You were sort of like, no one's going to watch this. Of course, the opposite turned out to be true. Are there lessons that you took away from like that period of like, I'm not so sure if this is a great piece of content, right? No one's going to want to make a Twinkie at home, but ultimately, you know, did so well. What did you learn from, from that and having that realization? Yeah. I mean, there were things that I learned about myself and then there were things that I learned about sort of like how, how an audience or a readership consumes what we do. We being like recipe developers or authors. Um, I, as you said, like I, I was very skeptical and I didn't understand what made gourmet makes into a winning concept because then that was exactly what you said, which is because no one was going to make that stuff at home. And I was so used to thinking about my job as someone that provided a service and that the recipes we created were sort of problem solving roadmaps for people at home. And what was the point of making a video if no one was going to use that information to make something at home either? It didn't, it did not occur to me that anyone would be watching Gourmet Makes as a means of entertainment, but then they did. So I learned that it's about the process and that people find the process of recipe developing really fascinating. And I think I get confused a lot for a food scientist. I have a limited understanding of, of food science as a baker, but I'm not a food scientist, but we but would we use certain knowledge of technique and past experience to, to reverse engineer these iconic snack foods. And that process I think was very, very interesting for people. That's notable. I think that people were fascinated by the things that happened inside of a test kitchen and, and what that process looks like. And then about in terms of myself and my own process, I learned a lot about my own creative process and the way that I problem solve I learned sort of a technique for problem solving that I still use now in my recipe development at home. Um, so it wasn't totally pointless, but it's just about sort of giving oneself the space to tackle a problem. And when that problem becomes very difficult or 
seems unsolvable to take some, take a step back, like let your mind relax around a problem rather than trying to grasp it tighter and tighter. And eventually sort of a a solution presents itself. Often the solution is about making something less complicated rather than more complicated. I have great personal lessons that I took away from that show. There's still an element of its success that is very mysterious to me, but I'm very grateful for it because I do feel like it, it set me up to be doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, I want to ask about one more thing about Bon Appetit before we go to the book. So obviously, you were still working with Bon Appetit when The Reckoning took place last summer. Listeners of our show know we've talked about what happened there. I think many folks are familiar with the context there. So we won't, we don't need to go too much into the context of what happened. But I'm just curious if you can share a little bit about what you learned from that period. Like, how has that affected how you think about your work now moving forward? What lessons did you take away from being part of a workplace that was suffering from inequity that I think exists in a lot of workplaces, but was so visible and so public in a way that many workplaces aren't, right? Like, I think Mm -hmm. we saw a lot of similarities with what happened at Bon Appetit to other food media, other media in general, other workplaces all across the world. But what did it mean for you to be part of that? And what did you take away from that? Right. Just a very, very quick point of clarification, which isn't even really totally relevant. I was yeah. not that happened in June of 2020. I, my contract had expired in May, but that in some ways is irrelevant because Got it. I'm, I was very closely associated with that brand. And I was also freelance at the time and had left my full-time job there as a food editor in 2018. But again, it, I don't think that that is as significant as just the idea that I was sort of a tentpole of Bon Appetit video and I'm still closely sure. aligned with the brand. So That's technical. But I take your point, which is that I was part of this extremely visible brand that in a very public way was sort of shown to be not distributing opportunity equally. And I, of course, benefited from that opportunity. And I took away a lot of wisdom from that experience. And one was that it is okay as an employee to, and not, not just okay, but it is sort of one's duty, I think, to hold the institution that they work for to a high standard. I think that I thought of myself as being somewhat exempt from this structure because I was freelance and I didn't really work in the test kitchen anymore. And I just showed up during my shoot days and shot video and went home. And that did not exempt me from participating in this unfair system. And by not pushing back on that, I was you know, even helping to prop it up and contributed to its success. So I learned that I have to hold myself to a high standard and by extension, hold my, the institution that I work for and with to a similarly high standard. And I, and I wasn't, and I didn't. And so I'd also similarly made me realize that I want, I want my own, I want control of what I'm doing. I didn't have, I did not feel like I had a lot of control over the kinds of videos that I was making over the way that that workplace functioned, it did motivate me to want to be more in control of what I'm doing so that I can take these lessons and I can have more agency just going forward. Now I'm fully kind of a free agent and that's a good feeling. And um, it was a very painful, very public experience. And it's not, and I, and I use the past tense, but I don't feel like it's in the past. I think that it's something that I, will carry with me forever. And and I think that there was this um, inflection point and a tipping point. It is not, it is not ever going to be past tense. It is going to be an experience that influences how I approach 
professional and personal relationships going forward, I think forever. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. The work is is not done for any of us. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Claire Saffitz. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Dessert Person by Claire Saffitz, as well as two featured recipes from the book, a caramelized honey pumpkin pie and a buckwheat blueberry skillet pancake. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Clara Saffitz, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Claire Saffitz, author of Dessert Person. Back to the book um, briefly and sort of on the same concept in a sense in that you had become so associated with the Bon Appetit brand and with Gourmet Makes you could have easily, I'm sure, written a Gourmet Makes cookbook. Like that could have been your debut cookbook. I have no doubt it would have just sold like hotcakes. How did you approach the decision of what your first cookbook would be like? You know, what would mm-hmm. it, what the concept would be? Well, okay. So interestingly, I couldn't personally, like legally couldn't personally write a Gourmet Makes cookbook because Kanye Nast owns the concept Gourmet Makes, like, which isn't even important because I didn't want to do that anyway. And I was never going to do that as my first book, but I couldn't if I wanted to. It just speaks to the fact that Dwarf Makes wasn't my idea to begin with. Like they just kind of came up with this concept and then slotted me into it. Dessert person. But I always knew, I do think that is a kind of rejoinder to Gourmet Makes because for the reasons you pointed out, it's not friendly for home cooks. And as you also mentioned, like most people would know me from that show. Even people who don't know my name, I'm sort of like, oh, you're that girl who like made a Twinkie or something, which like I get a lot. (laughs) But I wanted to write Dessert Person because I wanted people to know that I am a baker, that I'm a home baker and that I have a a certain aesthetic and a certain approach to eating and cooking and baking. And I wanted to show people that. So dessert person is a really wholehearted embrace of baking and eating and sweets and enjoying dessert and enjoying food and not, not applying a kind of morality to dessert that you have to earn it or that it's, you know, you're being bad or like quote unquote, sinful when you eat dessert, you know, there's two ways to kind of read the book. There's the superficial, there's just 105 recipes that are going to turn out and, you know, impress your family and make you feel like a baker, hopefully, and be very delicious. And then there's the kind of overarching theme of dessert person, which is what I just said, which is that it's about, you know, enjoying food and in, in eating dessert, choosing dessert. Yeah. And you say that you believe everyone is a dessert person in some capacity, right? Yeah, I encounter people, I think they're like aliens, but I encounter people who say, and I encounter this in food media, there are people who'd be like, I don't eat dessert, or like, I'd rather have another glass of wine than dessert, or I have the cheese plate or whatever. And my response to that is, well, first of all, why do you have to choose? Right. That seems silly and like a false choice. Um, sure. And also like, I don't believe you, like you're lying. If there's five tastes, 
And sweet is one of them. I don't hear people going around being like, oh, I don't like salty things, you know, or I don't like sour. Well, some people might say that, but I, I just like, how can you ignore one of the five tastes? There has to be something in the sweet dessert category that you like, you know? So what I say in the book is everyone is a dessert person, even people who think they aren't. And that's just because they haven't found their dessert yet. Um, so I fully believe that and like kind of think people are full of shit when they're like, I don't like sweets or something. I just think that that means they're probably eating really bad or poor quality or overly sweet desserts. You know, I would like to think that if they had a slice of a, of a perfect tart tatin, then they would like it. Yeah, I think so. And on a similar note, you not only believe everyone is a dessert person, but also that there's a set of folks, right, who say they're home cooks, but like baking is a different thing. It's too intimidating. It's too sciencey. You know, it's too rigid for me. You sort of take a similar approach there and that like all home cooks are also home bakers. You just have to, you know, give yourself a little confidence, right? There's this kind of false division between bakers and cooks. And yes, like baking is not cooking. Baking, you have to measure and there is science involved, but it's not like you don't have to measure or that there isn't science involved in cooking either. There's a difference of degree, I think, but there's not there's not a difference of, of type completely. They're just, I think they sort of exist on a spectrum. And so it's like, if you think that cooking and baking are totally separate disciplines, then how do you explain something like a chicken pot pie or a savory turnover or something, you know, it's, um, I want to say the word fungible. I don't know if that's the proper use of that word. They're, um, they're like, uh, (laughs) they're not such rigid categories. So for people to say that you're, Oh, I'm a cook, but I'm not a baker. Something I also hear constantly. I think I just hear a lot when I hear people say that I hear maybe like a touch of sexism, maybe like a weird anti-baking bias. I hear, I don't know. It's just, I just don't think that it's a thing. And I tell people that. So I'm like, if you like to cook, then you can enjoy baking too. And yes, you have to measure, but is that really like such a burden of to entry? You know, I don't think that it is. Um, And I, but I do think it speaks to how people are very intimidated by baking. And so a lot of dessert person is about trying to lower people's level of intimidation about it. Um, And I, I understand being intimidated by it. Basically, everything in dessert person is baked. Like everything goes in the oven, except for I think one recipe, which is English muffins, which are made stovetop. So I understand how mysterious baking is because something goes in the oven and then when it comes out, it like looks different and there has been a transformation. I think it's something that people could approach with more curiosity and openness rather than this really almost like fatalist level of perfectionism that they think, well, oh, if I don't know what I'm doing, then I'm not going to try, you know, because what if it doesn't turn out? So dessert person is really kind of an attempt to encourage people to, to take more risks when it comes to baking and to not fall into this false, like dynamic of I cook, so I can't bake or something like that. Right. Were there recipes that surprised you in their appeal, like either ones you thought would be really popular and you didn't see so much uh, energy around or ones that like took off? I mean, when I think about the past year, I feel like everyone was making focaccia. I saw a lot of people making your focaccia, a lot of people making Semi Nostrat's focaccia. I feel like that one took off. Are there others that surprised you in sort of their success? Yeah, especially around the holidays, I was surprised that so many people made these like sour cream and chive little dinner rolls because the recipe is kind of hard. The recipe was 
not hard. I don't want to say that. That's actually not true. Sorry. I'm editing myself. It was not hard. <laughs> it was a lot of steps, um, which I think is actually another thing people confuse. That's not the same thing, I don't think. But it had a right. bunch of little steps and you have to sit there and form each little individual bun. And um, tons of people made that. And I was surprised. And they they were really good, I have to say. Like, they're delicious and so pillowy and soft. I, so I think I expect this, the simpler recipes to catch on more and then the more complex recipes to be less popular, but that wasn't really the case. Yeah. I mean, I think, and it also was a little bit seasonal, like the book came out in the fall. And so a lot of the kind of fall recipes were more, more visible and people seem to be making them more, but as you say, definitely the focaccia, the brownies, I think like a lot of people made the brownies for obvious reasons, you know, brownies are comforting and people are familiar with them and, and they're, they're pretty easy because it's all one bowl. A lot of people made like the kabocha squash bread, a quick bread, like a, a really easy recipe. A lot of people made what I think is interestingly, maybe like the best or favorite recipe in the book, which was not even really my recipe, but was my mom's poppy seed cake, which is just like so easy uh, and good. And I sort of had an idea that it would, it would be the the dark horse because on set, everyone ate that and lo- loved it the best. You know, there would be like the, the croquembouche or the, black sesame pari breast on the, on the counter and everyone would be eating the poppy seed cake, which is sort of humble. Um, yeah. So right. it, was, it was mixed, but it is, it is also just so fun to see the recipes come to life and, and, you know, exist in social media. When I was thinking about the cookbook, I sort of only got in my head to the point where the book was done and sent to the printer. And then I just, in my imagination, never got beyond that point. And then when the book came out, it was somehow like a shock. And I was like, Oh my God, like, uh. That's how is that person making that right? I was like, oh right, because you put it in the cookbook, and now people are buying it, which is great, and making it. Um, <laughs> somehow that was a surprise to me, um, and it, but it was a very cool thing to see. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so we're a show on cookbooks, obviously, and I know that you have studied food history and cookbooks at some length. I found something online that you wrote, I think, during your master's program. Maybe it's a thesis constructing the politics of cookery on some English cookery books from the 1600s. So I'm curious with that context of like a person really well-versed in cookbooks and food history, if you can share with us any like authors or specific books that have been really influential to you, either in the course of your career or like as guides for you as you were writing your first book. Yeah, I love this question. Um, I'm glad to be able to talk about it because I do think, I mean, so in graduate school and my master's program, old cookbooks were my texts. And I love, love, love reading cookbooks, always have, have always read them as books, you know, like I'm not, I'm not really cook or big from cookbooks, but I read them because I'm so interested in everything from the minutia and is it illustrated? Is it not illustrated? How are the recipes written? How are the ingredients listed? Everything from that, the sort of physicality of the book, the materiality of the book to you know, the ideas and the the, the kind of f- flavor of the book. That said, there's some contemporary cookbooks that I really look to. It's just so funny that you found that paper from my grad school days. I like wonder what that, <laughs> would, what that would be if I went back to it. I remember loving, that was not my thesis, but I remember loving writing that paper. And they're such great, if you go like on Google Books, such great um, cookbooks from the early modern period in England. So they're like written in English and they're not, they're not too hard to understand that they're fascinating. And I love them. And I think that it gives me a really nice long view of cookbooks. Mostly to, to realize that like, there's nothing new. I'm not inventing new things when I make a recipe. You know, in fact, 
I thought about this before. There's probably recipes that I think that I quote unquote invent in my head. And then you could probably find one that looks almost identical to it. If you like look through enough books, you know, um, because especially in baking, there's like proportions, right. there is like, this is how you make this thing. And if you wildly change it, then you made something else. So that perspective is really helpful. And it means that creativity when it comes to recipes, creativity is small, it's small scale. But it's still, but it's still creative, and there's still so much you can do within the form. So I love that I have that perspective, and that from reading old cookbooks, like there's something called a blanc mange, which is like a very a dessert dating back to the early modern period, which is basically sort of like almond, it's like almond milk set into this kind of like jello. Okay. It sounds gross, but it's really good. And I just love, and like, that's something that like I would make and, or a version of or something. And um, I just love that when I see something, I'm like, oh, that's like a blanc mange, you know, basically. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The question was about cookbooks that I like <laughs> and hold dear. And I have a handful and they're all pastry books, not surprisingly. One is Chez Panisse Desserts, uh-huh. which is, I think, mm-hmm. really like a pastry chef's baking book. Um, it is just, it's so perfect. That's Lindsay Shear was the pastry chef that wrote that book. It just, to me, captures like the essence of what simplicity means. Really simple elegance. The, the recipes are so elegant and they are so California, but also so European and classic. And just effortless and perfect in every way. And I look at that book as a constant source of inspiration. Um, Similarly, Claudia Fleming's book, The Last Course, which was recently reissued because it had been out of print and is now back on shelves, which is great. Same thing, like Claudia's style is just so, it's so beautiful and abundant. I think this is like some of the highest praise that I can can heap on something is like, I wish I had thought of it when I read her book, you know, like, like the ideas are so good and they feel so natural, but they're so creative at the same time. And she's just a master of flavor and texture and love her. I'm obviously a huge admirer of Claudia Fleming. Another one, actually a recent discovery of mine, for some reason, this had escaped my view was Emily Glucchetti, who is a pastry chef in California and worked with Jeremiah Tower for many years, was the pastry chef at Stars, which is not a restaurant that I was familiar with. But I recently got my hands on a Stars desserts book. And same thing, the style is just effortless and classic, but and beautiful and embraces seasonality. That's another thing about all of these books is they embrace seasonality and seasonal produce. And there's so much emphasis on produce. And that kind of goes back to what I had said earlier about how there's not that much of a difference between cooking and baking. And I think that baking can focus just as much on seasonal ingredients as cooking does. And I love, I'm a, I'm a fruit dessert person. That's kind of where the the name dessert person came from is that's how I identify. I'm a dessert person Mm. Um, and I'm a fruit dessert person. So I love books that just take advantage of, of incredible bounty. Um, Anyway, there's, there's a bunch more, but I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm definitely rambling. Those are, I mean, those are excellent suggestions. I don't know the stars dessert book actually, but I, I love the other two and I'm going to seek out the stars one. So we always end with a little game. So I thought since you are a dessert person, that's how you describe yourself, we would put you to the test. We're not going to go too extreme, like gourmet makes extreme level, but it might be a little bit of a challenge. We've got the cards that we typically use for our games. And I'm going to ask you to draw any number of cards that you want. And that'll be what we have to work with. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how we might make it 
a dessert that we could we could serve to a friend or or something we have four categories we have vegetables self-explanatory we have proteins which i don't know would be a an interesting choice and some of those may be a, a stretch we have flavors which are herbs spices flavoring agents and then we have secret ingredient, which is kind of the wild card. So it can be like a very obscure ingredient, or it can just be sort of a random pick. What are you okay. feeling? Wow. Okay, so I pick a number of cards. Is that right? You can ch- pick and choose, you know, you want one secret ingredient and one flavor, or what do you want to okay. have in, in sort of your, it's sort of like a chopped basket, right? And then you have a right. pantry at, at your disposal too. Okay, cool. I'll take one. Let's take two wild cards, one flavor, and one vegetable. Okay. So for vegetable, we have carrot. Okay. That's that's possible vegetable to get for a dessert. So great. Yes. Oh, and flavor, we have nutmeg. (laughs) It's looking good so far. I'm thinking carrot cake. (laughs) Um, All right. Now here's where it gets interesting. Our two secret ingredients that we drew. The first is scrapple. Ooh. Okay. And the second is durian. Ooh, okay. I've never had durian. I've only smelled durian. Okay. I can see loving durian. Like I there's I know that people have love and hate feelings about durian. The scrapple yeah. is obviously the worst one. That one's I can't see that working in That's the hard one. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> with the durian, I would probably make like a tropical morning glory-esque cake using the carrot and mm, the okay. I would really like use a durian pulp because I know that like the texture would work really well and bring like a lot of silkiness to, and also just some sweetness to a cake. And then the nutmeg would kind of scent the cake and I would do some other warm spices, maybe even like a little, almost like sticky toffee pudding esque, you know, a little toffee sauce on it or something, make it super delicious. And the scrapple, ugh, the scrapple, the hell would I do with the scrapple? I guess I would probably maybe maybe like really super super thinly slice it and candy it with like some maple syrup and have it be like a little salty topping like super super thinly sliced though but I don't know I feel like if this were chopped I would I'm pretty sure it would taste good but I think I would get low points for creativity because I don't know that (laughs) that seems fairly obvious but um I'm fairly certain the cake would taste really good. (laughs) yeah i mean the cake sounds delicious and i feel like actually the whole dish i'm very impressed by drawing scrapple and durian (laughs) of what what you've presented so good work great uh well thank you so much for joining us claire this was so much fun to talk with you this is great thank you i love the conversation and i appreciate you having me on And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two featured recipes from Clara Saffitt's Dessert Person. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community to support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, our kitchen correspondent, is Sarah Varney. Our intern is Clea Worcester. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. 
Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.